good morning. Today on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, we have a deep and meaningful question for you. How far would you go to save your child from a disease like cystic fibrosis? Would you prevent your unborn child from having something like cystic fibrosis? What about a predisposition to depression? Or what if you wanted to make them more intelligent? Or what if you didn't want them to be born with a big nose? How far would you go down that track? So today we're looking at some technology that uh, is on the cusp of being able to do some of those things. It's not that far away. And it is, of course, gene technology. And in the studio, I'd like to welcome uh, first time on radio, Michelle Watson. G'day, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Rod. And Michelle, you are a, uh, a communications researcher doing your PhD at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science here at the ANU. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sebastian, oh, I should have checked how to pronounce your surname, <laughs> Sebastian. It's Kurshide, thank you. Kurshide, thank you. And you're a doctor at the John Curtin School of Medical Research and you're a genomics researcher. That's correct, yes, Rod, thank you. Let's, uh, let's start off with some basic genetics here, uh, Sebastian. Now, we talked about genetics versus genomics before we went live. Can yes. you just re reprise what that is? Um, I would draw the distinction between genetics and genomics um, in regards to the fact that genetics deals more with the function of single genes or many genes at a level of an organism, so like a whole human being, um, and at the population scale, so how certain genes uh, have an um, effect, for example, on, on uh, traits that are associated with certain populations um, all around the world. While um, genomics, in contrast, um, concerns itself more about how the, the genome in a single cell contributes to the, the many functions that the cells in our body have to um, perform in order to keep us uh, alive. So one's a large scale thing and the other one's much more down into the individual cell and so on. Let, let's, let's do a little bit of genetics 101. In fact, this is not even genetics 101. Genetics, the uh, primer, let's say. Let's just, just do some really basic. And uh, Michelle, maybe you'd want to pick this up. What's a gene? What's DNA, a chromosome? Just, just give us a little very short potted story. So um, DNA is the building blocks of life and each it's made up of a series of genes and each gene causes an expression. So you might have a gene that can alter your eye colour or a gene that can, um, can uh, make your heart pump more efficiently in, um, and genes work together um, in systems. And, uh, so so there, isn't, there isn't a single gene for a lot of things, are there? So... The, the, the genes for why Rod's wearing a black shirt, now that's a bit silly. Let's, let's say, uh, uh, just take some random attribute. Well, my height, for example, my body height. Is there, do we, do we even know what genes are involved with that? I'm not entirely sure about the height, but uh, it definitely is a combination of genes and also your lifestyle. I have an identical twin and I am one centimetre taller than her. Really? So, yep, all to do with lifestyle. 
that's very interesting. There you go. Because these, these twin studies are obviously uh, very important for understanding the, the difference between nature, the genes, and nurture, the environment, and how that influences us as well, individuals. How, how we know what a gene does, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. like, if you put all the letters of the, of, of the person's genome in, uh, so G-A-T-C, mm. is that yeah, right? That's yeah, right, and, and you were to string those letters out, it'd be like from here to the moon long or something. It's just vastly big piece of uh, data there how, how do we know what one little bit on that does well you've given a hint Sebastian uh, twins how, how else do we know um, I, I actually would like uh, come, would like to come back to your uh, introduction when you talked about cystic fibrosis and, and uh, for example, uh, intelligence or eye color. Uh, I think we, we differentiate or we, we make a um, um, distinction between um, uh, single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis and, and multifactorial disorders where like a whole range of uh, genes might be changed and, and might give rise to, to some sort of uh, disease or uh, a trait like hair color, eye color, um, where not a single um, gene can be pinpointed to be the, the, the cause of this particular trait. So in, in the case of cystic fibrosis, we know um, because of, of studying the disease that there's that there's a single mutation in a in a gene that that leads to this disease and uh, this is something that's inherited uh, from from our parents uh, when each of the parents has a copy of this defective gene and the offspring the children or one of the children has both defective copies so then then we see a disease like cystic fibrosis and and we know that because of a, a, a long um, history of, of scientific study of the disease. Uh, when, when we talk about um, more complex traits like body height, um, then, then we um, talk about associating uh, variants or, or different um, differences in, in, the, in the genetic codes between many it different be really complicated try, trying to work it out if it's a single thing then you can turn it on or turn it off yes. and see the mm. effect but if you've got a constellation of them and one affects the other affects the other that becomes chaotic very quickly yes. and if you change one gene who knows what effect it, I mean loosely say if you were cooking a dish a complicated a stroganoff or something and you, you fiddle with this ingredient then maybe that's not such a good example. No I think it's perfect I yeah. do that all the time with ill effects. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but well uh, maybe your grass isn't growing very well and you sort of dump a whole lot of phosphate on it mm. and it works or it doesn't work then you've got nitrogen and you put nitrogen on it so the the uptake of the plant of the phosph phosphorus is affected by the amount of nitrogen available and then the amount of water and the amount of sunlight and the amount of other micronutrients da, da, da. Uh, so how much chance do we have even figuring it out with it with something so complicated with in an organism <laughs> um the, the chances are improving uh, due to the fact that uh, over the last, uh, I would say, uh, several decades we, we have um, developed new technologies that actually allow us uh, to um, study the, the, the genome and the genetic makeup of individuals and of populations in a, in a much more precise and, and exhaustive manner. So we're generating a lot more data. So it's a statistical kind of a thing? Uh, part of it is statistical. Statistics, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, a lot of it is also um, 
hard work uh, because from from the statistical uh, analyses that, that we do, we come up with candidates of, of uh, genes that, that might be linked uh, to certain disease or other traits. And then we need researchers to actually study the function of these genes uh, and, and doing the experiments and, and understand uh, so how it's, they it's function. So it's a really complicated machine, lots of valves, buttons, and no one's really entirely certain what they all do. Now, Michelle, you're, you're studying the public's reaction or how people perceive genetic engineering. Is there a sense which people sort of imagine, oh, you'll get someone like Sebastian here and he'll he'll tweak this gene in my body and this will happen it's, and it becomes unrealistic that, that it's simplic simplistic? Yes, absolutely. I think because science, uh, especially in the genetics realm, they don't normally engage with the public a lot, although it is getting better. I think there's a lot of fear from what they don't know. And so if you hear something scary like manipulating someone's genes, it somehow becomes this larger-than-life thing and they think anything's possible, whereas it's baby steps and we do it um, we do it with a lot of research behind us. and um, With great caution. With great caution. Yes. Well, we, we have to title this show Franken Fuzzy. <laughs> I love it. Franken Fuzzy because that, that in, in fact, that encapsulates the idea of what happens when we start meddling with our biology, our own biology in particular. So does the, 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 the Frankenstein analogy, uh, do, do you sense there's a lot of fear in the public that uh, the people are just not really sure that the thing is out of control in some way. Mm, yeah, well, if you title it Frankenstein, absolutely. That has a lot of scary connotations to it. But, yes, it is. It is um, I suppose it is a scary um, prospect to think that someone's about to meddle with your genes. Um, so. Well, Sebastian, when you're doing your genetics research or your genomics research, to use the yeah. correct term, yeah. um, how conscious are you of the risks and, and the things that, that uh, may or may not work or the unanticipated consequences? Well, I, an anticipated consequences are difficult to, to, to deal with uh, because by the nature they're being unanticipated. So I guess no one uh, can, can predict uh, what particular piece of research will lead to some consequences in the future. Uh, when, when we think about um, uh, risks in, in a, a medical laboratory, uh, then we are quite aware of, of uh, the, the risks that we have like for ourselves and, and our colleagues when we use certain uh, chemicals and, and, and uh, other uh, substances in order to carry out our research. Oh, just in the process, in the lab work, you mean? Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. In, in the lab work, and, and there, there's, a, there's a very high uh, awareness of that because, in fact, we are required to uh, think about, before we engage our experiments, what is it that we actually do and what kind of substances do we work with? Are there some, uh, for example, viruses that are being used to, to carry out genetic manipulation? Oh, so you've got viruses, live viruses in the lab and so on? That's that's ah. the case. Yes. Well, so the, the 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 approach of scientists to doing work has changed a lot. And I always think of that bloke who discovered saccharin, and he was in the lab and he made this white powder and he had it got a bit on his fingers. And uh, at some point he went, oh, I wonder what that. And he and he did what was apparently fairly common at the time. He tasted it. Yep. And he discovered it was very sweet. And now we have saccharin. Mm. <laughs> so, but. 
we we wouldn't do that. <laughs> we, we wouldn't remotely go close to that. So just tell me a little bit more about your own background research, Sebastian. So what, what in particular are you studying? Um, so my, my, my particular field of research concerns itself with the question how um, a single genome in an, an organism can give rise to these many different uh, cell types and in fact organs that, that carry out all the, the functions that we need in order to, to make us living and breathing human beings. Uh, and uh, so this this is uh, called genomics and, and, and epigenomics, and it really addresses the question, how can it be that a single genome in, in so many different cells can actually lead to cells being so different uh, well, in what let, they do? Let me reflect back at you and, yes. and tell me if this works. So in the tip of my finger, I've got a whole bunch of cells, yeah. and uh, on the tip of my nose, I've got cells that are all cells of rod. They all have the same genetic sequence, don't they? That's correct, yes. But my finger cells aren't my nose cells, and my nose cells aren't my liver cells or my eye cells. Yes. Yeah. So somehow that cell behaves differently depending on where it is in, in your body. Yes. Is that what you're that's, researching? That's at the core of the, the, the research that, that, that I am doing, yes. And do we know, do we know why it is that, that those cells are different? And, and dear listener, uh, I should remind you that our, our guest on the right microphone here is, uh, and I'm not going to, I'm going to struggle with your surname, I'm sorry, Dr. Sebastian Kurscheid. Kurscheid. Yes. And uh, Michelle Watson, who's doing a PhD in science communications at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. So back to your question, uh, Sebastian. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we're getting um, a much better idea which um, processes and, and, and factors um, inform ourselves and uh, organize the, the, the genome in every single cell uh, that, that allows them to differentiate in different types like the, the cells that are in our skin or the, the liver cells or uh, the neurons in our brain and um, uh, this is uh, achieved by um, certain um, uh, programs and, and I think on an abstract level we can think about this as, as uh, computer programs that are uh, contained within our genome uh, both directly by, by the genetic codes, so by the ACTGs that, that uh, make up this, this, this library of, of genes in our cells but also the, the so-called epigenome which um, consists of um, additional building blocks made of, of, of proteins that um, will organize our, um, the DNA in our cells into um, active uh, parts so and that, silent that, that's parts. something about the way the, your genome behaves that's not, that, that, that is adjusted after your, oh, I'm struggling to find words here, after you're born or after... Uh, after, con after conception after already, conception, yes. Yeah, 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 but it's not inherent... It is inherent in the sense that the behaviour of the of the cell varies. I'm talking myself into a hole here, no, but, no. but um, it, it must happen fairly early on. So yes. my understanding is, if you get cancer, and so you have breast cancer or prostate cancer, liver cancer, or something like that, and the and the tumour metastasizes, mm -hmm. and and the cells from that original tumour migrate around the body. Yes, they take with them their original 
instructions, original behaviour. Yes. So a liver cell that lodges in your chest is still a liver cell. It doesn't suddenly become a chest cell. Kind of, no, it doesn't become, but it's, it's, would you call it a liver cell? It doesn't have the functions of a liver cell. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's a, it's a tumor cell that has arisen from, um, a liver tumor. So it, you're, you're correct in, in, in describing that. So mm. you, you retain, the cell retains a, a sort of memory of where, where it comes where from. It come from. Yep. Mm. And we can actually use this, uh, information to determine where, uh, the original tumor, mm. uh, Started. What yes. that tells me, though, is that the the way the cell operates is occurs very early in its life cycle. Um, that is essentially uh, um, th this information is passed on to the cell uh, when it arises from from its original stem cell and it starts uh, this this process of uh, becoming more specialized uh, differentiation yep. is wh what we call this and and uh, uh, specializing towards a particular function and uh, during this process uh, there are it, it's probably a continuum, so they are not discrete or, or um, fixed steps where this happens. But uh, along this this, this time span, um, the the cell's fun function becomes more locked in to mm. to carry out this this particular role. Yes, right. This has got to be one of the really difficult questions in biology, and uh, I, I could see you grimacing when I <laughs> asked you that one, Sebastian, because I, I think it's tough. Because well, when when a uh, an embryo is fertilized, or is fertilized, mm. beg your pardon, but uh, a newborn cell has uh, an organism, so it's got only a few cells that doubles every hour or, or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and somehow this undifferentiated original cell grows into all the different organs in the body. Mm. Yeah. Through a series of chemicals, if I'm... Is that right? I know it's... See, I, I'm not sure about you, but my genetics relies on flies, not <laughs> things. So I know it's they differentiate based on chemicals. But we, we are... Uh, we're hitting the difficult stuff here oh. on, uh, on fuzzy logic. I think maybe we'll give your brain a little bit of a rest. And uh, let's listen to a bit of, uh, bit of John Butler trio live today on fuzzy logic. Uh, And we are talking genetics, we're talking genetic editing and the future of what we might do to our bodies with the powerful new tools that we're developing. And our guest today, Michelle Watson, who's a PhD researcher at the uh, Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU, and Sebastian Kershoid, who's doctor at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. Now, uh, genetic engineering, so when we launched into our show this morning, I mentioned uh, cystic fibrosis and the gene for handsomeness and the gene that predicts whether one will appear on fuzzy logic. Uh, gene editing, what is it? Oh, first of all, the, here's, a, here's a term for you, and I think you'll like this. You ready? I've got a mouthful of words. Clustered, regularly, interspaced, short, palindropic, Repeats. <laughs> what is that? It's a new technology that's come out that enables us to edit specific genes more accurately and it's a lot cheaper. So potentially someone could do it in their backyard if they wanted to. You serious? Absolutely. And and it's happening already. Some biohackers can have already done it on a lecture, have just injected this and changed their genes. 
Wow, let's go into that in a moment because mm-hmm. there are some interesting stories around that. But uh, tell me a bit more about how it works. I mean, why is it so simple? So it can target specific. A lot of our previous uh, gene editing technologies were a little more broad and we'd have to insert a new gene almost randomly, not so much, but it was a little less predictable where we could edit our genes. But now we can target this particular CRISPR-Cas9 can has a guide that will link up the sequence we want with the editing. Well, well uh, Michelle, if I can quote you from... Uh, oh, yeah. you're, in, uh, you're in the Fairfax Media today, and uh, here's an article that you wrote for us for our Ask Fuzzy column, Breakthrough of Century, our sub-editor titled it, and you say that uh, CRISPR has the ability to create gene drives. We'll, we'll go on to that in a moment. The techniques prior to CRISPR, what you're saying, you were more shotgun, spatter gun, and hard to control. Yeah. A bit harder to predict where the change was going to happen. Exactly, yes. How did we discover it? That's actually, I believe, I believe that it was a, a bacterial enzyme. It was a, a defense mechanism for bacteria against viruses. Yeah. And um, this is where the CRISPR-Cas9 so came in. So bacteria already doing CRISPR themse- on themselves. Exactly, yes. And why were they doing that? As a protective mechanism. A virus itself is, is not, not an uh, organism. It's not independent, but it depends on the, the host's uh, um, cell machinery to, to, to uh, procreate, essentially. Um, and it does, or many viruses do this by um, inserting their, their own genetic information into the genome of a bacterial or, or eukaryotic or human cell, uh, you know, when, when we have a um, sinus uh, infection that's usually virus-caused, yeah. and uh, needs the cell's uh, um, genome uh, in order to carry on living. And uh, we have like a ver- variety of uh, defense mechanisms. And so the uh, analogy with a computer virus is actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Yes, it's a pretty good it, one. It, it yeah. is a good one, and yeah. it gets it, itself inside and modifies the host. Yes. Mm. And now, so the researchers in would notice that the, there were repeated sequences of DNA inside the, uh, the the genes of a bacteria, and they wondered what was going on. Is is am I on the right track there? So I'm I'm, I'm not an expert in in CRISPR Cas, so I I don't, I don't want to uh, speculate too much about the exact uh, yep. mechanisms, but um, my my understanding is that there are uh, certain uh, repeat sequences uh, in in the genome. So that means when when we, for example, have a sequence of AT, AT, AT uh, that that occur over and over again, um, that that can be recognized by an enzyme or protein like CRISPR. Right, Um, and so as Michelle is saying that the bacteria was using this as a defense mechanism, but we've, we've, science has now figured out how to, how to do this. And as we were just saying earlier in the show today, knowing where to change something in the DNA sequence is itself a very difficult question. But uh, assuming that you do know and you now can crank up this CRISPR mechanism mm. and you can shoot at the DNA sequence and you can... Now, how, how long does the effect last? 
It depends on the cell type that you're targeting. So if it's a, a particularly fast uh, replicating cell, then it has a shorter lifespan. It could technically um, be a long-term effect, but we're not entirely sure yet. Whereas if you're working on a something that has a slower um, replication cycle, the effects will be a lot. Okay, um, so stuff that lives in the lining of your gut, they're, they're short-lived uh, mm -hmm. cells. They, uh, I don't know how long they last, but not very long at all. So you're saying you modify the, the sequence inside those cells, they get flushed away, they're gone, and the, the effect is lost. Mm, well, um, in, in, we still haven't delved much into that yet. They're, we're still in clinical trials. But, so there is a possibility that this CRISPR-Cas9 could have a longer-lasting effect than other gene editing technologies, but I'm not entirely sure yet. If okay. Yeah, I, I guess it com comes down to the question if, if you are um, editing in, in, the, in the germ line, so in, in those cells mm -hmm. that... Uh, um, so the germ line being... Can you give me a definition? Well, essentially the, the, the male sperm and the, the female ova, these are right. the germline cells. So yep. when, when a uh, human is conceived or any organism is conceived uh, and, and uh, there's a pre-existing genetic condition, if you would hypothetically um, correct uh, this, this um, gene in, in, the, in the early embryonal, embryonal stages, then you would essentially have a chance of uh, correcting it forever. Mm. But uh, I think if you would target um, a disease in a, in a grown uh, adult human, mm. uh, then um, if, if you uh, only manage to correct um, this, this genetic disorder in, in um, mature cells that essentially don't replicate anymore, right. then when these cells die and get re replenished, uh, then uh, the effect of the, okay, the, the so correction you, would you essentially a, be gone. Uh, yeah. a, a spectrum of short-lived effect to long-lived yes. effect and possibly even effects passed on to the next generation, which uh, Michelle is what I started to launch into a moment ago, mm. uh, gene drive. Can you explain that? Ah, so gene drive is a bit different from humans. So a lot of people are worried that it can be used um, in humans. So what gene drive is, is you can effectively put a change, uh, a mutation into an organism and it has to be a, an organism that has a low generation time. So things like mosquitoes and mice that generate very rapidly. So we um, put this mutation in, say, a thousand mosquitoes and then release it into the wild. And this particular gene drive that's created by CRISPR has almost 100% inheritance rate. So every time this mosquito with the new mutation um, it's, uh, it's, mates, it's, uh, it's passed on. Passed on. It's passed on to almost all of its offspring. So we can effectively, in a localized area, change the population. And in the case of mosquitoes, we can change the mosquitoes' genetic makeup to not be able to house certain diseases like malaria. Now oh. there are major implications of this, are there not? Mm. And you're nodding, Michelle. There is. What, what uh, or, or Sebastian, what, what are some of the implications of, of doing this? Well, we don't know the effects yet. So if we're inserting a gene that has a favourable outcome, what we think, down the track we don't know entirely what changes that will have on the population, whether it causes something else that we weren't aware of. So at the moment there's some research in America on gene drives and one of the leaders who, I think it's else or something like that. Anyway, one of the leaders in gene drive technology is saying that we should only proceed with this technology when we have a reverse drive. So when we know that we can suddenly um, switch it off. Switch it off. 
Right, because once it's in the wild, then it gets passed on and... Well, so existing genetic changes just last as long as the organism is alive. Mm. And then, so if it has bad consequences, then it's a short-term, relatively short-term effect. Yes, well, if it has bad consequences, we can release a new population into the wild with the original gene. Um, and so, and that will repopulate. So it's not going to be an, um, it will have a, uh, the mosquitoes, the reverse mosquitoes will come into the population and go back to normal. Oh, that's that's called the oops technique. Yes, <laughs> yes, and it's very valid technique. <laughs> well, is there such a thing? Do do we or is such a thing likely to to be able to switch it off again? Absolutely. Yep. There's yeah. There's um, research going into it now. Absolutely. Okay. Well, now here we're entering the area of the the risks of genetic research and. Your own study, Michelle, is how the public perceives this risk. Tell me, what are you trying to work out in your research? What are you doing? So I'm trying to work out where people draw the line between therapies, gene ther um, gene, human gene therapy as a way to cure diseases or at least treat them, or all the way through to enhancements. So where people will find the risks outweigh the benefits or vice versa. And... So people who are listening to, if you're listening to Fuzzy Logic, you've got a survey that's open at the moment I on do. Survey Monkey, mm -hmm. and we'll put a link up on our social media. Yeah, and at what stage are you at with that? So we're almost to completion. We've got about 500 responses already from all over Australia, and um, it will be finished at the on the 18th. And we're finding some already. We're finding some really good results. Most people are very happy for to edit their genes if it's a last resort or it's a very serious illness that they're wanting to treat whereas if it's something like a mild condition or an intellectual condition um, so we find that people are not so happy to edit the genes and enhancements most people um, would not want to enhance themselves change their uh, fitness level uh, change their cosmetic appearance Yes, it, 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 it's, there's an analogy here with uh, nuclear science. I think that the, this sort of research is incredibly powerful. It's extremely potent and we're not entirely sure what it's going to do. We might uh, break to a track, I think, here on uh, Fuzzy Logic and a bit more John Butler Trio. And uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll Let's explore a bit more on the nature of genetics, what it means for we as humans, what it does to us as humans, what do we think of it, and uh, how does our predisposition affect how we think about it, what tribe do we come from even? And a bit of John Butler trio there to live in your day here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. We're talking genetics with uh, Dr. Sebastian Kershaw and uh, Michelle Watson, who are both involved with well, Michelle, in the public attitude to uh, genetic engineering and uh, Sebastian on the genetics inside cells. Now, I have a little confession to make here on uh, public radio uh, uh, about myself, and that is uh, I have uh, very severe hearing loss, and uh, it's not fun, I can tell you that. But uh, when I've been to the specialist, I said to the specialist, what... What, what's the cause of my hearing loss? And they looked at me and they said, it's your genes. And I'm thinking, right, I don't know that, but uh, I can tell you if a genetic cure for my uh, cochlea 
appeared on the market and and the risks I understood the risks I would be right in there I would be right in there so I'd be quite happily modify my own genetics but what that's one possible example now research is being done into hearing and, and how genetics uh, manipulation might help with genetic gene editing might help uh, in that condition but there's a whole host of things that we mentioned uh, uh, cystic fibrosis how many how many conditions are there that um, that might be treatable or in some way mm. yeah I, I, I wouldn't be able to put like an exact number to that but uh, we I think we're looking at um, perhaps dozens uh, of, of genetic disorders uh, that uh, have a single causative gene uh, or uh, perhaps a, um, a single origin that are quite well um, understood. Mm. Cystic fibrosis. So they're not the, uh, the complicated constellation changes yes, that we so were talking about earlier. Where we don't have an interplay of many different genes and environmental factors that need to be in, uh, taken into consideration. And my, my, my personal opinion or my, my personal perspective is that um, diseases like uh, cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease uh, and... and um, there's dozens of them, yes. Yes, like sickle cell anemia, where, where you have like a single uh, mutation. Uh, the, these are might, uh, might be good targets for um, genetic therapy using technologies like, like CRISPR-Cas. Uh, but more complex uh, diseases like, uh, for example, Alzheimer's disease, which have a genetic component, so there, there are certain genes involved, but that also have like a uh, important... Um, uh, or where, where the environment and, 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 and our um, upbringing and um, our well, lifestyle have a huge role as mm. well to play. An environment but effect as well. Yes. Well, they're, they're the breast cancer genes, aren't they? The BRCA1 and BRCA2, mm. and, and there are more being discovered all the time. Yes. Well, you, Michelle, so if you discovered you had that genetic mutation, and would you, would you undergo, um, in this case, preventive therapy? Preventive. I... Um, I don't think I would undergo preventive. I think I would if I had the cancer, but I think the risks at the moment, I think I'd, I'd prefer to go about and uh, make sure that I have regular checkups and I look after myself. But I'm not sure if I would do preventive. That is a question on the survey, though. Would you rather pre um, use it as a preventative um, thing? But, yeah, I'm not sure if I would. Well, there, there are some women. Wasn't it uh, Angelina Jolly? Yeah. She had a double mastectomy yeah. and she didn't have any cancer, I think, isn't that true? Yeah, it, that was a preventative yeah, as well. But she must have been rated as a high risk. Mm, yeah, and I think it's a personal choice. I think if you're willing to, uh, if you are quite scared of it, Absolutely, a double mastectomy is probably the best way to ease your mind. <laughs> well, mean, of, of course, it's also very, very radical surgery, and, and I think that uh, in, in, you know, an example like that, uh, also the, the family history plays a role, mm. uh, and, and um, you know, someone wouldn't make this decision lightly. But after, for example, re receiving something like genetic counselling, and uh, that, that's and perhaps something that explain the risks exactly. Well, yeah. How far away are we from actually being able to, or how, many, how much of this is actually happening at the moment? How many, how many people are being treated for uh, genetic disorders using these sorts of techniques? 
Oh, I don't know how many, but there's quite a few clinical trials ongoing with the um, gene therapy. We've seen at least five successful cases in the last month, yep. um, all from different types of uh, disorders. We have a skin condition. A boy was treated for a skin condition, which meant that his top layer of skin uh, couldn't sit on his bottom layer of skin because he was lacking a protein uh, but he was treated there's also I think we should mention there's a lot of different ways that gene editing can work we can take your cells and edit it outside the body and in the case of the boy we grew the edited cells into a sheet of skin and then uh, transplanted it back onto him mm-hmm. so that's one way or we can actually inject a viral guide into your uh, into your body and edit the genes inside. So, so then it becomes a targeted, uh, and we mentioned it, earlier about you can send the virus into a particular cell type? It depends on the virus. We choose viruses that target a specific cell and that also relies on uh, viruses being able to access difficult places like the um, central nervous system. We need specific viruses to cross that blood-brain barrier. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Michelle, uh, biohacking, and uh, some people have taken it into their own hands. So there's this story about this guy uh, named Tristan Roberts. You can look up his story on the BBC, and uh, there, oh, there's biohacking conferences, apparently, <laughs> and he suffers from AIDS, HIV, and he injects himself with the plasmid antibodies called N6 to, in, in an effort to treat his uh, uh, HIV. Uh, you, you're looking very concerned, Sebastian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's your take on somebody doing this? And uh, I should say, this guy, his day job is a computer programmer, uh, has no medical background. He's doing completely outside medical advice. And uh, is that why you're looking concerned? Um, it, it is uh, certainly concerning. Um, uh, I, I, I would never recommend anyone uh, in engaging in this uh, sort of uh, experiment because that's all that it is, uh, a human experiment uh, that this, this person conducted on, on himself. I, I, I don't know any details about this case, so I can't really uh, comment um, on, on, on that particular case. Yeah, on, on the other hand, uh, I think that uh, science and um, medical science uh, history is, is full of examples of uh, researchers that have done things that perhaps in hindsight might have been um, questionable or, or uh, uh, very dangerous. Uh, late example would be the research in Helicobacter uh, as being a causative uh, um, a cause for, for um, stomach cancer. Um, and uh, these these researchers, I think in Perth, uh, um, I can't recall his name. Barry Marshall. Yes, Marshall uh, actually yeah. drank like a solution. He infected, he infected, infected, but he he was a medical researcher. So That's he, right. He, he he took a very calculated risk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, probably still against uh, any advice that would be given to to students and, and research and, and ethics uh, in in uh, at any university. Uh, sometimes so, uh, you you you've got to take a chance. No risk, no gain, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, you've got to take a chance. I mean, you think about the people who first arrived in New Zealand. They hopped in their little boats and they paddled across ocean. They were well yes. outside of land and yeah. somehow they got there. And I wouldn't mind betting a few never made it as well. But uh, I, I, I suspect that if the effect is limited to yourself, mm. then you, as you were saying, Michelle, you, you have that personal choice. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it but um, you're not affecting somebody else 
and that's where the, uh, the gene drive thing comes in. If you did something to yourself and it was passed on to future generations, then that would be that would be a different can. That's a so that's um, that's not gene, so gene drives can't affect humans because we have such a long generation time, but. You're absolutely right. The gene editing of the germline that causes you're effectively saying all of your um, all of your offspring and down the track um, will have this mutation. So but you're it, making that choice for them. At some point, we 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 probably can affect our own germline when the technique gets advanced, perhaps. But should we? There's a lot of should um, we? Yeah. Yes, and so the ethics, the risks, the benefits, and so on. And this is the sort of conversation we're having here this morning on Fuzzy Logic. We're playing with the the, the levers, the buttons of a very complicated machine here. And what are the implications of doing that? And we need to give it very serious thought. I suspect. Would you agree? It's going to be a long while before we really figure out what this means and how we should treated yes absolutely yeah. yeah at the moment we can only work on a, a small amount of disorders where we have as Sebastian put it um, a well uh, a well researched idea of what these genes can do how they're affected uh, so yes it will be a while before we get that uh, now for a listener who, who's thinking okay gene editing or, or uh, DNA manipulation I just want to give you an example which is a low technology one that's happening right now and we're around about the time of uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Oh, yes. yes. Thanksgiving. And what do they have at Thanksgiving? The they turkey. Eat yeah. Turkeys, right? Now, a turkey, a commercially grown turkey in the 1930s, would weigh about six kilograms, right? In 2014, a average commercial turkey was 13 and a half kilograms yep. mm. and they haven't done any genetic editing there's no chemistry or anything they've just done it by selective breeding yes. and we've got dogs uh, and all sorts of animals uh, sheep cows cats all have been extensively modified by humans just uh, by breeding essentially every agricultural product exactly. that that's right we find on our table every day yes. so the, yeah. the, the 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 poor old turkey is more than double her size, I presume it's the female we eat most, I don't know. Anyway, but here's a few things that have come along with it. additional weight. They now tend to be bow-legged. Okay. Uh, they've got foot pad sores. They have a large breast, and because that's the part we eat as well. They get breast blisters, and a lot of them can't even stand up right properly because they're so overweight. And, uh, and just to throw in a little sideline there, uh, a third of all turkey that is grown is wasted. <laughs> but, uh, but but it probably illustrates well not just that genetic manipulation has been going on for a long time, but that there's all sorts of implications of mm. doing it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Do we know? Well, well, how long will it be before we know? We, okay, you can't answer that question, I guess. The, no, we need to do uh, long-term studies. A lot of these, uh, I mean, we don't know the if we insert a gene, we're not sure how that's going to affect everything else. It might form cancer in some case. I know some of the early experiments, we inserted a gene in the wrong place and it caused lymphoma or something very similar. Well, we are running to the end of our time mm. here on yep. Fuzzy Logic uh, with our guests uh, Michelle Watson and Sebastian Kershaw. And uh, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave our listener with? Because it is a, it, we, we, we've got some pretty deep and technical conversations going on today. But uh, are there any simple messages that you want to leave before we wind up? 
I think people should absolutely uh, do their research. If they're worried about gene therapy and what the potential is, all I've heard is what's in the news, I think there's a lot of very educational and easy-to-understand websites where they can look at what editing involves and the risks and all of the amazing research that's going on and at the moment. And would you feel that you, you have, we, we all have a science background in this room, mm. that uh, it is something that we definitely should be doing, we should continue this research that we Absolutely. The benefits you believe outweigh. I, I, I think it's it's uh, inevitable that that we continue with this. Uh, uh, I think uh, you know I, I don't want to call it Pandora's box, but it's it's been opened. So we, we are, the research is being conducted. I think uh, there, there's a bit of a um, responsibility also on our side, uh, the, the science community, the researchers. We need to always engage more uh, with with the public. Um, but I, I think explain uh, ourselves, explain like why uh, research is being done into which uh, conditions, what, what we can perhaps one day cure. Um, but I, I think I would also um, li like to say that, you know, we, we like to reach out to, to the public and uh, would welcome uh, feedback from, from the listeners and, and the wider community and uh, um, engagement in events that, that we, for example, host at the John Curtin School for Medical Research, like the public lecture series that uh, our director holds uh, once a month and um, if there's interest in particular um, topics uh, we, we would welcome to receive uh, suggestions mm. for things that should perhaps be covered. And in how important is the guidance of the public opinion to what direction you take your research? I think it's very important because as researchers uh, we have an obligation to the public because uh, every taxpayer in Australia funds a large portion of our research mm -hmm. so uh, obviously we, we have to be aware of that, uh, that at the end of the day even uh, the, the big question research and the fundamental research that we do uh, has a benefit for, for everyone. Um, exactly. and that's, yeah. Well, that's the whole point of the survey, is to try and influence policy regulation, see what the community actually wants for our, um, our regulation. So, a uh, plug for your uh, survey, Michelle. Mm. People go on to SurveyMonkey mm -hmm. and complete... The, how long have they got? Oh, until 18th of December. 18th of December, and that research will feed into, uh, as you say, directing how uh, how this research is done and understanding the concerns of people. Absolutely, uh, there's a lot of ethics. Taking, there's religious concerns. We mm -hmm. haven't even talked about inserting the genes of another animal. Like if you're Jewish and someone puts a pig gene into exactly. the food that you're eating, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, that all has to be taken, and it has to be taken, uh, treated sen with sensitivity, would you agree? Exactly, it does. Well, that's, uh, that's a good thought on which to end here on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you for your time, Michelle. Thank you, Rod. And Sebastian, oh, Michelle, you've got another column you, next Rod. week. I do. On quickly? On um, the risks. When is it all right to change your genes? Uh, okay, and so check the Canberra Times uh, online Fairfax today and you'll find Michelle's column in the Ask Fuzzy. More next week and uh, we're back again next week. Thanks, Rob. Catch you later.